Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The orphans bond a family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother, Wesley Mann. Today, we are reviewing Netflix original film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Chicago. Chicago 7. Yeah, I didn't feel a lot of Chicago accents in this one. Um, Abby Hoffman. Well, Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. I, I couldn't tell if his American <laughs> accent was shaky because apparently Abby Hoffman was educated in the in the or he grew up in the East and was educated in the West, and so he might have had a little bit of a mingled accent. But Sasha Baron Cohen was pretty reluctant. I guess he had done American accents in bits and here and there, but like committing to a full role was pretty new for him. I have like a factoid tidbit backstory thing for once. The story goes, Sasha Baron Cohen was working with a dialect coach on spec, right? He wanted to try out for this role when another director was attached. So he preemptively started working with a coach. He put himself on tape and he progressively got better and better as they did more and more takes. I think they worked their way up to like 40 takes on a tape. And, you know, around take 30 or so, he decided, all right, I think this is ready to send to the director. So he said to his assistant, so send 28. And I think we're ready. And so his assistant did. And then he met with said director. Brian speculated it was Steven Spielberg. I'm not sure if that's true. And Steven Spielberg was like, well, you know, on take one, I could tell you were pretty shaky. <laughs> but by take 28 at the end, you seemed like you were really getting a handle on this accent thing. That's funny, man. You are only as good as your weakest link, right? The weakest link on your team. <laughs> I have been that person. I almost brought down my literary manager that I that I interned for. Cherie Guitar? Yes. I once unblind CC'd everybody a script that she sent out. So all of Ooh. her content, like 35 people. And I knew it as soon as I hit send. There was nothing I could do. Ugh. It never came back to haunt me, but I was that person. That's pretty funny and yet effective. I guess it worked well enough because Sasha Baron Cohen is an associate producer on this big movie. Yeah. He gives a super strong performance, a Golden Globe nominated performance. No, anything. a Golden Globe winning performance, Doesn't right? Mean anything. Definitely a film better the second time around, in my humble opinion. It was pretty dense. It was kind of an experience. As Aaron Sorkin, the director, had mentioned, and the writer, had mentioned, uh, he didn't, he wasn't going so much for authenticity as he was for overall sentiment and the, the heart of the story. 
I can sense this because it feels dense, but light on its feet. Like it feels unburdened by the truth. Yes. Despite it being a very heavy story. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it has the hallmarks of a sweeping, fun, accessible. I mean, it's hard. It's impossible to say that any of this subject matter is fun, but it does feel light and not taking itself too seriously, albeit serious subject matter. Maybe stylish is the right word. And Aaron Sorkin, having been around a long time, regarded as one of the best writers in the business, he hasn't directed many films. Yeah, he directed the rather disappointing Molly's Game. I don't know. I thought that was solid. I felt like it was small scale enough so that it could be his first foray into directing without being complicated and sprawling and ambitious and a massive cast like this one was i think maybe i was just i just had jessica chastain fatigue when molly's game came out uh she was a thing f- certainly for a while and has slacked off a little bit but she was in like eight movies at one point a year right yeah i think the year that molly's game came out what was it 2017 she was everywhere yeah it's just stretching a little bit He used all his talent on this movie, and, uh, you know, it's worth noting that Sacha Baron Cohen is famous for his improv work, and to be kind of tied to a writer who's very particular about his words, is it's almost the opposite of improv, right? Mm, where the script is more gospel. Right. And, but he takes, to Aaron Sorkin's credit, he takes from many sources. He's made no secret about the fact that he'll go in, watch a piece of entertainment, and come out with his mind spinning of, okay, I learned this, and I learned that, and I'm definitely going to use this. I thought that for a director early on in his directing career, the riot scenes were handled really well. I thought that there was a nice mix of the establishing shots with dozens and dozens of police protecting that stupid statue in Grant Park and the rioters kind of coming head to head Braveheart style. And then it was a lot of intimate, like really close Billy Clubs against Skulls kind of shot. But it gave a great picture. And like JFK, it was intercut with archival footage. And maybe it was a cheat, but it was immersive and it felt historically significant. And yet it still felt biased. There was one shot in particular in the riot scenes. I'm not sure which one it was, which riot scene it was. But it was like a medium of a girl, of a young woman, probably in her teens, with little blonde braided pigtails getting clubbed in the head. And I was like, yeah, um, that makes the filmmaker's position pretty clear, right? That these are relatively speaking innocent people who are being unjustly unleashed upon with violence. A hundred percent. And I'm just saying that the way that it looked, it felt like it meshed with the historical footage in a way that it didn't feel fake to me, but biased. Absolutely. Because this to our earlier point is exactly the kind of movie that it is. It's making a declarative statement, declarative. It's making, it's making a statement that comes down on the side of the defendants, whether or not they're exonerated in the charges of inciting the riot, we are on their sides and Aaron Sorkin is on their sides. And uh, he did gloss over the fact that a lot of police, like a hundred police officers did get injured or more, that it wasn't pretty. It wasn't like pigtails and flowers in place, uh, you know, running up the hill to get clubbed on. It was dirty and it was bags of poop and bags of pee and throwing bottles and bricks and golf balls with screws screwed into them and stuff. And and a lot of police did get hurt. In the film, as far as I recall, no police officers were harmed. And yet people were clubbed. Pigtail Girl was clubbed mercilessly. Old people, Pigtail Girl, like 
the girl with the flag is kind of inexplicably raped or sexually assaulted. It's right? bizarre. And so while the police are clubbing pigtail girl, other girl is being sexually assaulted and no police officers stop it. Look, I'm not saying these types of things didn't happen. It was just clear what the filmmaker's agenda was. And this is the poetic license we accept with cinema. Not to suggest that these things are glorified or justified in any way, of course, but it was clear that Aaron Sorkin was on the side of the yippies, right? Yuppie hippies? Oh, the Youth International Party. Yeah, that one. The Yippies. Yeah, of which Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin are the are the leaders. Right. Jerry Rubin, Gary. my man. How's Gary? Jeremy Strong. What? I don't, you have no, you just don't have the context for Jeremy Strong. Well, no, well, no but you saw The Big Short recently, so, you, so I hope you would have renewed respect for Jeremy Strong. I don't know who, I don't know who this dude is. <laughs> the guy who played Jerry Rubin, that he doesn't know what to do with the egg. Oh, <laughs> He was pretty much buried under that wig. Well, and and then very much hidden in the shadow of Abby Hoffman, Who's, like quite literally. Who towers over him by like three exactly. feet. Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen is a big dude. I mean, look, I get that like Joe Golev and, and Ed Red are pretty small dudes, but Sasha Baron Cohen's at least 6'3", right? He's got to be. <laughs> yeah, 6'3", and like... So lanky. Yeah. And so perfectly paired with Jeremy Strong as Jerry Rubin. With another three inches of hair, probably. Three inches of hair and probably lifts because that was the (laughs) style of the day. (laughs) Like, yeah, he was towering. They're definitely period appropriate clothes. But one of Aaron Sorkin's direction was like, hey, we're not going to make this super tie dye bell bottoms. He wasn't trying to make it comical or like Forrest Gumpy. He did treat his theme seriously, and this film obviously echoes the sentiments of of the unrest, civil unrest last year. And uh, you don't see these moments for what they are. I mean, the trial of Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin even admitted that he had to ask his dad about it because while he was alive at that time, he didn't, as an adult, have any real knowledge or recollection of those events. Um, You know, there are certainly other historical events in the 60s that were more prominent, and I'm a fan of that kind of stuff. But I have to admit, you remember we talked about Apollo 11 and JFK, about my love for that era, just in terms of films, the Vietnam War and stuff. And I mm-hmm. admit that I came into this angle pretty blind. Judas and the Black Messiah was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X, not so much. Judas and the Black Messiah is a great primer for Chicago 7. So my view of this film completely changed after having seen Judas and the Black Messiah. It's not just Hampton and O'Neill in their own sort of these underground factions, but rather part of a larger figure, a larger presence of civil unrest. And Mm -hmm. because you see it swirling around where Hampton is at best a secondary character in this movie and his death is notable and it impacts the eighth member of the of the trial but it just expands the world but his death is rather assumed we're supposed to go into this film with context for fred hampton's execution and certainly the first time i saw this i didn't know what was happening i didn't know what the quick photo montage was supposed to represent you know his basically execution in his bed sleeping next to his pregnant wife and i didn't understand bobby seal when Eddie Redmayne and and the attorney go, Mark Rylance go and see him, um, you know what that was all about. What I didn't really understand what happened, and I looking back on it, I'm not sure how I missed it since Bobby Seal is pretty plain in describing what he heard had happened, had gone down. But still, it was all kind of over my head. And I think also at that point, I was like already overwhelmed and pretty checked out. Like I wasn't tracking it and I was just letting it wash over me. Right. And this is definitely a watcher. Yeah, I think it is. it does serve as a watcher, but it can be viewed 
just letting it wash over you because in a way that happened. I didn't take any notes. I sort of picked up the pieces later or I try attempted to and put them together, but it is a lot. And I, and I can see how it can be somewhat off putting or alienating. If you feel like you're outside the know of the historical context, it's really hard to just jump feet first into the 60s civil unrest without the context. Fred Hampton's death might have gone easily overlooked, other than how it affected Bobby Seale and his outburst in the court, because even Bobby Seale, as in this movie, who had other things going on, wasn't exactly clear. He might have been slipped a message or someone had relayed to him about that Hampton was killed and maybe even that he was outright murdered and didn't have a chance to defend himself. There was no mention of, of him possibly having been sedated by O'Neill or the FBI targeting him or anything like that because he didn't know. And we don't know. We don't have a basis for these historical events uh, with the benefit of hindsight. When they're happening, when the Democratic National Convention is happening, you read in the paper a blurb about civil unrest in Grant Park, and that's it. And you don't feel the historical impact until it's viewed through the lens of history. And I think that Knowing that going into it, you can just let sort of history be presented to you on a platter, which I think Aaron Sorkin did a pretty good job of doing. He pulled together all these disparate elements and, and told several stories and kind of loosely threaded through this trial that was otherwise kind of uneventful. Like, who cares about the guys who may or may not have incited the riot being exonerated, ultimately, spoiler, except that they hold the threads for all these other stories that paint a picture in general of 60s civil unrest. But there aren't a lot of detours. We stick pretty faithfully to the trial as the spine of this story. Ooh, do we? And that was compelling in itself, but there were a lot of people to keep track of those threads. And so we needed this sort of hub and we can focus on the fun, goofy participants who are portrayed as bad guys, as opposed to the obvious bad guy of the federal judge who was so loathsome. It, ma it made me, I had to pause the movie and question how a person who was that vile and reviled apparently could possibly ascend to a position of power. You and I work in an industry where that happens, seems to happen all the time. It's like the more forceful and brusque you are, the more willing you are to step on other people and to most importantly be decisive, you can go anywhere. I'd like to think that that's coming to an end. I hope so. Um, but uh, Judge Julius Hoffman, apparently not a very well-regarded justice, but played so beautifully by Frank Langella. Like, I think he was channeling some... He This judge was, like, way more hateful than his Dracula. <laughs> Man... He was a legitimate monster, right? This was the real-life monster. Usually it's the lawyers who are blood-sucking. <laughs> is a judge Thank just you. a boosted lawyer? <laughs> he, Whatever he is, he is judge monster incarnate. And it's, and it's just so infuriating that he's in a position of power. It is unbearable at times, but apparently yeah. not untrue. That dude handed down something like 147 counts of contempt throughout that long-ass wow. trial. Can you get punished for contempt? Oh, 100%. Mark Rylance's character alone racked up several counts, I think maybe seven or more, and that amounted to four years of prison time. William Kunstler served prison time? Well, he was handed down all those contempt charges, and then they were thrown out when the case was retried. Oh, or, you know, right. when another judge got a hold of the case, they were like, that's ridiculous. This guy was power hungry and crazy and threw it all out. 
it just goes to show, I guess, if you can make something of it from a dramatic perspective, it's not without consequence. You can't just be like, haha, it's funny, I'm disrupting the court. You will go to jail. And that's a bad deal. And for people like, like uh, Abby Hoffman, that wasn't so much of a concern. I mean, what did he say? He's like second nature to him or whatever. <laughs> Being held in contempt. But yeah, and, and so for dramatic purposes, you can uh, do those things and it makes it colorful. I don't have nearly the contempt for my country as the as my country has for me. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Mark Rylance's performance in this? I find him to be a strange actor. Mark Rylance uh, has been Steven Spielberg, one of his favorites for a while now. I believe it started with Bridge of Spies. And he's been in a few movies, Ready Player One, BFG, The Big Friendly Giant since then. And I find him to be a weird dude. A lot of that comes from his portrayal of uh, Halliday in Ready Player One, where he plays a Garth, Wayne's World Garth level character. And I think he's a good actor. He's a good, serious, wearing a suit, understated, yet powerful actor. But th this seems like exactly the right role for him because I don't know about his dramatic range. Someone said of Ethan Hawke, it was on Jimmy Kimmel's mean tweets, that Ethan Hawke wasn't supposed to be a movie star, but just kind of slipped in under the radar. And people were like, mm, OK. And that's how I feel about the more mature, established Mark Rylance, because he was nobody. Maybe he was a character actor like Christoph Waltz for like decades or something. But all of a sudden on my radar, this dude appeared and suddenly was everywhere. He was in Dunkirk and all these movies. And here he is in a high profile role. I don't know. I, I don't know how to feel about him. He's fine. Yeah. I mean, he felt if this is his only lane, <laughs> I guess he was right on. He was right on track. Right on, man. <laughs> he felt appropriately. He was an appropriate kind of outsider in his profession to represent this group of outsiders. Yeah. You know, he took it very seriously, but he had a healthy amount of distaste for the system. Like, he could approach it with the right amount of levity, mix of levity and seriousness. I thought that it was a super strong performance. I think basically really strong performances across the board. Like, some of my favorites for some of these actors. Like, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Strong, and nothing is going to eclipse his performance in Big Short. <laughs> or in Succession, but this is definitely my favorite performance of Eddie Redmayne, whom I typically don't really have a liking for, and probably my favorite for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Even though he's great in Inception, this is way more dramatic and, um, and just a really great vehicle for him, like a really great mature role for him. So some great actors whom I like in their best performances, in my opinion. He always looks like a little kid to me. He looks like a kid at the big people's table, at the uh, the big lawyer's table. He's just a little dude. And I got no problem because, like you said, I think in Inception he was great and he was very serious. And while he's a little bit small, I thought he was pretty good at fight scenes <laughs> inexplicably. <laughs> but Ed Red, not altogether that big a dude either. He's a little Harry Potter-looking wizard dude, right? But, but Fantastic Beasts. Well, yeah, but that's it's, on, it's the wizarding world of Harry Potter. But Eddie Redmayne makes me laugh because there have been online comparisons where they're like, it's one of those once you see it, you can never unsee it thing. And he has the exact same face without the hair as Felicity Jones. And I wonder if that's part of your contempt. Like you, like they'll do a face yep. match and you're like, that's uh, that uncanny and scary. 
I 100% believe it. 100%. (laughs) And and all these guys are fine. There's like half the cast are severely British and doing these like not only American accents, but Chicago period accents with the slang and the drawl and all that stuff. Yeah. Apparently, Mark Rylance, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, all severely British. And, And so another thing about this movie is while it's meant to be historical and while they're not shying away from the darker aspects of history... It is more fun and stylish and peppered with actors that, in my opinion, are recognizable faces. You know that when Frank Langella walks into the room as the judge, you're like, okay, he's going to have a role then. This is not just going to be the judge who overrules the objections or sustains them, right? He's going to have something to say. Or, infuriatingly, nothing to say. There were a lot of prop ticks in the courtroom between Judge Hoffman's glasses and Bill Kunstler's glasses and Schultz's suits, buttoning of suit jackets. Yeah. Like, did you notice this? I did notice the compulsive buttoning and unbuttoning of the coat. Every time you stand up, you <laughs> got to make sure you button up. But uh, beyond that, not necessarily because it was a sideshow. It was a mockery of the courtroom. And for and, and ordinarily you would think, come on, guys, let's have a little order. If you want to be exonerated from major charges, maybe be respectful. And, you know, when they've got the robes and then the police, which apparently was all true. They took off those robes in real life and stepped on them as a show of defiance. They didn't have police uniforms under it. So it's not all true. Were they all wearing those white jumpsuits in solidarity with Dellinger, or was that just the dress for the final statement? We did have that question. Mark Rylance's character, Kunstler, seemed to have a longer, very non-lawyery hairstyle, but it was all mm-hmm. slicked back and respectful. Everyone had their suits, but man, it was like, guys, you're going to wear the like the bandana over like the crazy bushy hair in court. Like you don't want to slick it down a little bit. I get that you have contempt for the judge, but there are real life consequences that could be handed down. You kind of sound like Tom Hayden, who is always taking this trial seriously and admonishing his co-defendants for their lack of kind of respect and their lack of seriousness. Look, I have respect for the institution, maybe not the execution all the time. Because while I'm all on board with a lot of these causes, I'm not sure that I'm there ready to hurl poop for the cause. And I'm learning that there is no, maybe, no other way than to stir the shitstorm, than to really make a memorable impact. Because those are the moments that history remembers. Examine why was this so crazy? What were people so fired up about? And I'm not sure that peaceful demonstrations get that done. I'm just saying I don't know that I can be on the real front line of that. I'm maybe just too old. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Tom Hayden's all about I'm the only person who dresses like an adult. I'm the only person who stands out of respect I can't believe I have to explain to you that the way to change, to make change is to win elections. Like he's trying to be an adult and maybe he just sees himself as being better than his counterparts. Maybe he's got some superiority complex going on. I feel like maybe I'm trying to adult in a situation where I'm not at my best, where I don't have the best perspective. I've never been in court and I feel like if I were in court with charges against me, I would try to play by the rules. Maybe it's just because of fear of not being in control of the situation. I think I have a real control issue. 
You know who was in control? Who's that? Michael Keaton's cowboy character. Yeah, and again, when you see Michael Keaton show up, you're like, okay, this dude's going to throw down in one way or another, right? <laughs> Ramsey Clark certainly does. I mean, he is not a, he doesn't appear to be afraid of anything. I think he strikes a really great balance of contempt and respect. It's just such a shame that the jury and perhaps the public really didn't get to hear his testimony until until now. I don't know if that's really true. I don't I don't have enough context on this it on is. this historical event. Is it? It is true that he was called in under voir dire and the judge was determining if his testimony would be admissible or acceptable for the jury to hear because he wasn't previously listed as being one of the people called to testify. And so his testimony wasn't given in front of a jury and hopefully it was accurately represented in the movie. So you can see that kind of defiance paying off historically. But you would have thought that Hoffman and Davis would have really been worried. I mean, they weren't worried, but I would have been worried in their position that I was going to prison for a long time for contempt. And not only that, but piling it on. It's not like Bender in the Breakfast Club. And what are you doing on Saturday anyway? Well, now you're going to be Saturday in detention. Like, we're talking about prison, guys. You can't affect social change from prison, I don't think. I mean, you probably can, but also you can affect social change by becoming a martyr. I suppose so. If you are like Fred Hampton and you have people watching you for your messianess and potential martyrdom. But if you're nobody and you're talking trash against the establishment because I ain't going to take it, man, it's a scary position to be in, I feel like. But at the same time, there were subtext to these, which makes these great characters. Because yes, Hayden was like, I'm the upstanding citizen. I know the system. I respect it. And therefore, I can work it to my advantage as best I can, despite being, a, you know, the accused in a major trial. Like Ruben... Jeremy Strong's character, he was pretty surface, right? That's who that dude was. He was the one who would be susceptible to a pretty FBI agent <laughs> going undercover and influencing him. He's like, we're taking it slow, man. He still couldn't let it go, even after he knew she was FBI. Right? Did she ask about me? But... <laughs> Hoffman was on a different level, and I think that's why it made it a great character, because Hayden believed he had everything in his grasp. He believed he had a firm understanding, but he didn't understand Hoffman's subversive approach. Obviously a very smart guy, just kind of playing the dumber companion to Ruben. I mean, he also said, I can't believe you can't understand exactly how my mind works in dealing with the establishment like this. It was very present, and he was pretty keen in a way that uh, Hayden didn't understand because of how we view him, because of how we regard him based on his appearance, and certainly how the judge did. But there was a method to, to his madness, which undoubtedly appeared as madness to me initially. Well, he certainly proves his intellect on the stand, and perhaps his tragic ending belied his, what did you call it, madness? That kind of was a punch to the gut, Abby Hoffman's suicide. I mean, who, I don't have any context on it, but it seems pretty tragic for somebody who really wanted to make a difference with his life. Yep. Uh, Tom Hayden seemed to have made a difference or achieved his dreams or maybe even uh, ironically fulfilled Judge Hoffman's prophecy for him. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, a fabulous performance as Bobby Seale. So yeah, it seems like we are in agreement that not only was the story behind the trial of the Chicago 7 important, 
but it was revealed to us in a way that was compelling, that was immersive, with really great performances. I mean, all, all around seems like a pretty solid delivery from writer-director Aaron Sorkin. And on that basis, certainly admirable to be able to come with just a few films in your director filmography and to choose something this ambitious. All kudos to him. I, you remember we talked about Judas and the Black Messiah in that the director stated that he wanted to give this dramatic story and use it as something of a Trojan horse to reveal the story of O'Neill and Hampton to the world, which not a lot of people outside of this sort of movement understood. I didn't know who, the, who either of those two people were. And likewise, I didn't know anything about the trial of the Chicago 7. I was a little bit hesitant because we had just seen a Fred Hampton movie. We, I knew that he factored into this one in some way, and I wasn't sure if we were going to review it because I didn't want to be redundant. We had a Hampton film ready to go, but this was different, and I think it was presented to us in a lighter, more stylish, more engaging way to deliver this relatively small in the scope of things trial. I think of it as, as kind of JFK light for me because it wasn't as hard hitting, but editing, the writing certainly is crisp and yet kind of reserved for Aaron Sorkin. I always regarded him as being wordy on the verge of being just a touch too clever. Like there's the comebacks are a little bit too snappy and too immediate. And this one felt more measured and careful and not quite as quippy because not everyone was super intelligent, but also it felt real to me and not like, oh, that was profoundly Aaron Sorkin in style. But it was sweeping and the score at the end with the furious applause over the raised fists and the reading of the names. But stylistically, it was presented in a way that was gratifying. The intercutting of monologues from different people to recount the historical you know, the setting and, and to recount what happened, cutting from person to person within more or less the same monologue. In the cold open? It happened a couple of times where they would just just jump from character to character, continuing the same narrative thread on the word. It was the, these moments called from history, developed and shaped and stylized and presented to us in a way that, like a Trojan horse, unveiled this story to me which I might not have known about, and I found it enjoyable. Trial of the Chicago 7, for my official rating, is a solid all-right rating. Rewatchable, there's a lot to admire for a movie that thematically wasn't meant to be enjoyed. The Trial of the Chicago 7, a Netflix original film, history served on a platter. A solid all-right from Wes, a good from Iris many props to writer-director Aaron Sorkin for some of the best performances from these actors that I've seen. We would love to know what you think. Let us know. 818-835-0473. Hit us up on our hotline or send us an email or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Man. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. 
We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast Networks include Ruby for Female Empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for Geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast.